This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Hi, uh, good evening from me. This is Louise John Bokers Cooper. Uh, I've just started my first show with you guys tonight on the Twilight Show for Teachers Talk Radio. It's really nice to see some of you already have joined, uh, and I hope you're all okay tonight. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk out with Teachers Talk Radio. Okay, and here we go. Um, I'm due back at work tomorrow. Uh, that's a little bit scary for me. It's gone incredibly fast this six week holiday, yet also incredibly slow uh, with duties in childcare and my, looking after my own child for once. It feels like I've been able to devote a lot of time to her. I am definitely ready to go back. However, if only for a little rest, although I'm sure I won't be saying that in a week's time. Got a really exciting show for you. This is my debut show with Teacher Talk Radio. Going to give it a go. Never done anything like this before. I have been a guest on podcasts before, which I always get fascinated about how people make them and do them and never thought I'd be doing it myself. So... Uh, pushing myself out of my comfort zone, definitely. Uh, had a great induction with Teacher Talk Radio much in particular to Tom. So my show will have a leadership focus. So I'm not going to spend an hour and a half talking about it because that would be quite boring. But what I will be doing is having that senior leader slant on the world of education. Uh, I've got a really good guest tonight, which is my co-founder of MixEd. I'll talk about that shortly. He will be joining us shortly for a little bit of a chat about all things education in his field as well. So about me, said my name's Louise John Bocas Cooper. That is a Mauritian uh, surname. The Cooper bit isn't. And one of my hats is I run an organization called MixEd because I am in fact a mixed race educator, one of the very few in senior leadership. Uh, Last count, probably about 0.1% of senior leaders are of mixed heritage, mixed race, dual heritage. We come under lots of different different hats there. And myself and Marcus set up a platform to amplify the voices of mixed and ensure mixed race or dual heritage people get their their space as well whether that's in the curriculum whether that's our young people so some really exciting work so natural progression to want to work in the world of podcasts and teach talk radio is a wonderful platform for that my other hat and my main hat is senior leader so i'm a deputy head teacher and i think this is my third year going into deputy headship and my re- as well as just day-to-day running around trying to sort a whole host of problems out. But my my official remit is safeguarding behaviour, attendance, and also disadvantage 
Uh, I also oversee equality, diversity and inclusion, although that is, of course, everybody's business responsibility, but really, really enjoy that role. Not something I originally sort of went out into thinking that would be my my remit as a deputy head, thought I would go more down the curriculum side. I used to be a, a head of history. Um, politics is my other subject. And I now kind of have moved away to that into a more pastoral role and found that I really, really enjoyed that. I love being a senior leader. I definitely wouldn't want to do anything else. And I do aspire to be a head teacher. So that's something I would like to, to pick Marcus's brains out as well. What, what's the landscape like for a head teacher at the moment? So my show tonight, I just wanted to sort of talk about as we go and start the new year, the new academic year, looking at the challenges that lie ahead on our landscape. I've been having a bit of a read about this, and of course, I've got my own thoughts. I picked the brains of my own head teacher, who I hope will be listening at some point. He said he might call in. And we've been having a little think about what the challenges were in our context. So I thought what I would do is I would just talk about those challenges from last year before I project, project into next year or the upcoming year and think about what lies ahead for us as leaders. And by leaders, this, this show is not just for senior leaders. Um, I want any leader to contribute to this show. We are all leaders and we, we try and teach our young people that very much, that they are leaders of themselves, they are leaders of others. And again, leadership journeys in education are just so varied, whether that's down the pastoral route, the curriculum route, uh, whether you lead on a particular specialism when it comes to pedagogy. There's so many different ways to lead in education. And I think that's one of the beauties of the profession. And hopefully, if nothing else, I can sell the idea of, of getting to senior leadership and beyond, as, as Marcus, my guest, um, is now um, an executive director across a, a multi-academy trust, and he himself oversees four schools now. So I want to promote leadership. I want to explore what leadership is as a concept and how we become more effective leaders in education. So the year that was... I would say it's the first, and I am using inverted commas, even though you can't see me, it was the first normal year. Um, I would not call it a normal year though, but if I was to reflect now on the challenges that we faced as a school, I'll give you a bit of, of context for my school. So we're in Greater Manchester. We're just on the outskirts of a big city, really leafy area but we are very much linked to the the metro um in manchester and and the all the the advantages and disadvantages let's say that so we're very much don't be fooled by the the leafy exterior very much on the outskirts of what is a a brilliant city i, I would even say one of the best cities in the uk but i'm not here to cause controversy um you might hear my accent that's an older accent so i'm a greater manchester girl anyway so that's probably why i'm a little bit biased which is very naughty for a history teacher However, it's a, it's a challenging school in that it has its really unique challenges. And we always talk about working in challenging contexts. And some schools, my goodness, are incredibly challenging. But every school comes with one's challenges. You're looking at that national picture and then you're drilling down into your very bespoke, unique character of your school. So when we had our return to school, 
we live in, a, we work in an affluent area. Most of our children didn't have that digital divide during lockdown. And therefore, you, you could say that we were incredibly lucky. But the main challenge of last year was the return to routines and the building of resilience in our young people. Young people are incredibly resilient and they, they surprise us all the time. And that's why we love to work with them. However, it's without doubt that the pandemic hit those young people hard. And I would say particular year groups were hit in a, in a particular way. So I've seen already, I've been doing a little bit of reading before I did the show. Um, and I was looking at um, what's out there in terms of what people felt were challenges at the time last year. And, and a lot of it was around the immaturity of some of our young people. And that's not in a negative way. That, that comes from lack of social skills, an online life over the pandemic, um, because how else were our young people able to communicate? And that brought real problems. And I'm sure we have adults that were furloughed for many, many months who had to suddenly go back to the world of work and, and struggled with those routines and things like that. And schools are very strange places that you probably won't ever go to a place that's so regimented and, and so structured, but that's the only way to make it work. And I think some of our young people really struggle with that. Some of our lower year groups, that sort of immaturity. I remember um, one anecdotal um, thing when we first reopened was we were watching the year sevens were all back in zones in that first year when we reopened. And uh, and we saw the year sevens and we were like, oh, they're, they're, playing, they're playing tag and they're playing role play and superhero. We, we just weren't used to seeing it. Like already year sevens come in with a certain persona, don't they? And we found just, just little things like that were really interesting. But I would say by far the, the toughest challenge of last year was getting our wonderful year 11s through their GCSEs. And, and I'm sure everyone who's listening or does listen to podcasts will agree. Hats off to them. Because if you think about this year group, they they went through puberty in lockdown. The one time when you are supposed to be moving away from your family, literally detaching yourself, your brain is wired to do that, detaching yourself and going to your peer groups, the world shut down. So that particular year group, and this is my personal opinion, were the most affected by that lockdown because they really were at a critical point in their development as, as young people. And then they had to go in. And it's, of course, the first year where it was back to normal. I keep using inverted commas, back to normal um, in terms of exams. And there's been a lot in the news about the results and about the return to 2019. And yeah, we, we, have, to, we have to go back to normality. But we know that I mean, I could talk at length about devolution in the UK as a politics A-level teacher, but it's not been the case in, in some parts of the United Kingdom where they have returned to 2019. So we now have that sort of disparity that way, but also emerging yet again, that disparity regionally in England, particularly the Northeast, but also that the divide and we will call it a divide between those that have and those that don't have and those results are showing again that early analysis that, that there is a lot of work to be done that gap has widened um, a lot of good work that people did post pandemic you know has opened back up again but also what will that do to those future life chances when you are being measured against peers that 
did not face the same difficulties that you did during lockdown and to your education. It was a real challenge for me last year, particularly overseeing behaviour. Um, and we, we have already, as a school, decided to go down an attachment and trauma-informed approach with behaviour and a relational behaviour policy, which I'm due to launch tomorrow in our staff inset. So I won't do any spoilers on this show for them. But yeah, it, it was a difficult year and we've had to alter our, our approach. And I think all schools have. But again, never at the expense of raising your expect uh, lowering your expectations uh, for for what you want in that classroom. And ultimately, and and this is our job as leaders, is to ensure our classroom teachers can teach and that every child can access that quality education in the classroom and that we as leaders do what we can to make sure that that happens and we facilitate that so yeah i think behavior and, and establishing routines was was one of the challenges from last year going to talk about this more with marcus but i guess the the other area where there was a challenge was the amount of need of some of our young people in terms of SEND which has always been on any discussion around funding and provision. But again, we found that some of our young people, their needs had grown as a result of the pandemic. And also those gaps that maybe would have been filled at key stage three and that therapy work and that intervention work hadn't happened, of course. And it therefore meant that those students were at a little bit of a disadvantage. And then you've got all the arguments about funding and provisions and, and what that looks like. So again, that was a challenge. And I was looking at a, a questionnaire that's been done recently by a large organization. And they sort of found that it was primary school teachers that in particular are worried about the SEND gaps. And I, and I understand that. And we found that with that some of our year sevens and we found that, you know, we have had to apply for more educational health and care plans to try and get that funding and to protect that child because they're not quite where they should be in line with their peers and in line with their own prior attainment before the pandemic. So lots and lots of challenges ahead. Um, and what I'm going to do after uh, we just have played some adverts is I'm just going to introduce Marcus to you. In fact, we'll go to the news now. Um, give you a little bit of a break and time to digest. And I'd love people to interact on Twitter. Um, I'd love people to, to message and call in if they wish uh, and have a little chat with us. But I will introduce Marcus after the news. It's time for a fresh start to language learning. Pearson Edit new student-centred French, German and Spanish 2024 GCSEs cater to the needs of all learners, regardless of their background, ability or reason for studying. Rooted in language, their assessments are transparent and accessible, allowing all students to showcase their language skills. Through inclusive and relatable content, the new Pearson Edexcel MFL GCSEs build a shared cultural capital and help students develop an understanding of and appreciation for the wider world. Find out more at go.pearson.com forward slash MFL GCSE 24. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News.
BBC News reports on GCSE results and the impact resits in English and maths could have on post-16 providers. According to figures it has published on the news website, over 167,000 pupils in England received grade 3 or below in maths, whilst 172,000 failed English language. The number of pupils not achieving grade 4 in English language is highest for a decade. The Association of Colleges has estimated that the extra GCSE resits could cost around £16 million for the year and highlighted the yo-yo effect the pandemic has had on resits, making planning a huge challenge. Julie McCulloch of Education Union Askell said resits were demoralising for students and reform of English and maths qualifications was badly needed. Last year, only 20% of those retaking a maths GCSE achieved grade 4 or above. The BBC also reported on GCSE pass rates in England, Wales and Northern Ireland as falling. The drop was steepest in England, but in Wales and Northern Ireland, grades were all to be higher. Analysis on the news website also indicates that in England, the gap between regions with lowest and highest proportions of GCSE passes has grown and that state schools had a steeper fall in pass rates than in private schools. Schools Week features a story on A-level results and the widening attainment gap between North and South. According to data published on its website, the North East now has the lowest proportion of A-star and A-grades, lower than pre-pandemic levels, at 22%. At the same time, London and the South East have recorded the biggest rises when compared to 2019. Labour's Shadow Schools Minister said the results showed the failure of the government's levelling up agenda. The article discusses a range of factors attribute to the disparity across the best and worst performing regions, including existing long-term deprivation exacerbated by the pandemic, food insecurity made worse by the current cost of living crisis, and more usual factors such as attendance, device access and the use of catch-up schemes. Full details can be found on the Schools Week website. The Guardian also takes a look at academic outcomes for pupils, this time through the lens of those referred to social services during childhood. It states that data suggests these pupils are twice as likely to fail GCSE maths and English than other pupils. Data from a three-year period found 53% of teens who had been referred to social care did not achieve a grade four pass in both the GCSE subjects. This is in contrast to 24% in those not subject to a referral. The analysis was carried out by the charity Action for Children. It is the first study to examine data for children with a referral rather than just those who receive support. Around 318,000 children a year are referred to social care, although many do not meet thresholds to receive support. The Guardian also featured comments from school leaders on the impact high levels of absence and poor mental health of pupils have had on outcomes for some. Many cited a lack of formal support for pupils and their families, contributing to further strains on school staff as they tried to plug gaps usually filled by other services such as social care and the NHS. Following on from its examination of regional disparity in academic outcomes across different regions, Schools Week also reports on proposals for elite six forms being given the go-ahead. The Eton Star 16 to 19 Free Schools, a collaboration between Eton College and Star Academies, will open in Dudley, Teesside and Oldham. This is part of the 15 new free schools announced by government in the last week. 
The aim is to improve education standards and get more pupils from the North and Midlands to Oxbridge. The Sixth Form Colleges Association has, however, warned that more sixth forms could lead to existing high performing being unnecessarily disrupted. Eton College will provide financial and extracurricular support through its partnership with STAR. Education Secretary Hegan commented on the 15 new schools saying, we want to make more good school places available to families. The 15 schools also include two new university technology colleges, the first to be approved in five years, and a Brit School North to be opened in Bradford. The sixth form sector has reacted to the new plan saying that in the 55 education investment areas, there are already enough colleges and school sixth forms in the areas to meet need. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. Just remembering to unmute myself there. Um, quite a lot of relevant stuff in that news report, as I was just talking about before, about that growing disparity in outcome, which has been exacerbated by the pandemic and that regional disparity there and, and what we're going to do about it. So I think there's a whole show there around that, that lovely, well-coined phrase, social mobility and how we actually achieve it when we've got the reality of what the problem is. So enough from me for now. Um, I'm going to now bring on my t speaker, um, who is Marcus Shepherd, who I who I know very well, and I'm very very pleased that he is here to join me on my first debut show, and I'm sure he'll be very keen to praise me for my amazing technical skills. Uh, Marcus, <laughs> are you there? Yeah, can you hear me? I can hear your lovely tones, Marcus. Brilliant. So, well, Brilliant. as I said before, Marcus is my Mixed co-founder. We're not here to talk about that today. We're here to talk about leadership and the challenges that face us. So I'm just going to talk a little bit about who Marcus is. So correct me if I get any of this wrong, Marcus, and I'm sure that you will. Yeah, no, it's all do. You were a head teacher in two schools in what were truly challenging uh, contexts before moving to be education director secondary for EACT Academy Trust. And you yourself oversee four schools of various different contexts, which I think will be really interesting because you're going to get that real sort of drone view of, of what it's like in different contexts, because I'm obviously only talking about one, one context on my behalf. Is that correct, Marcus? Is that what you do? That is. It's almost like you rehearsed it, Louise. It's I know. Like it's almost as if I asked you. I know. You it is. What, what, it what is. is it you do? Um, yeah. But thank you very much for joining me. No problem. Um, so I, I'm going to ask you some questions now, which is quite nice. I quite awesome. like that. So, so my leadership. So if we if we take leadership in this particular conversation as being yeah. senior leadership, where you can talk about your leadership journey, can you talk me through it, please? Yeah, yeah sure. So I'm, I mean, I started teaching. I did teach first program um, many years ago now, um, and just taught maths. And people often talk about leadership and how to get into leadership. I, I honestly think that. If your focus is just doing the best for the kids and the best for um, for them, then it naturally comes because I just worked my backside off. I really wanted to do the best for the kids um, and be the best math teacher I could be. And then kind of got approached when people asked me if I'd take on some responsibility, which I said yes to. Um, and I had to learn later in life to say no to some things, which is the kind of a, an early lesson that most leaders learn. Um, and then was kind of, um, kind of, kind of, sec not second, 
But I did a bit of work around Key Stage 3, became a head of maths, moved to another school as a head of maths, and then became an assistant head um, and, a, and a head teacher. Uh, so it all kind of came from just doing the best for the kids, um, not thinking about, I want to be a leader. Because I think if you say, I want to be a leader, you're, you're, you're often doing things just for the sake of the next step rather than you know, if you're doing something that you know is the right thing to do and is going to have massive impact for the kids and for the staff and for the organization, um, you're going to naturally learn those leadership qualities and people are going to want to to get on board with that. And particularly if you're passionate about something, um, people just get infected, get infected by passion. Um, and so that's kind of how it happened, really. I wasn't, I never said, oh, I want to be a head by this point or I want to be an assistant head or I want to be SLT. I just kind of really enjoyed the job um and just and just was all right at it and then and then got kind of approached to do various different roles and now i'm working across four different schools supporting principals and it's great to see leaders and to develop other leaders as well i think that's a true test of a leader isn't it is can you it's not about are you the best person are you the star player can you develop other people to become great leaders and watch them be successful and i've had some great mentors who have done that for me yeah, I absolutely agree. I think having having someone to learn from is one of the reasons that you become a good leader or someone that you maybe don't learn very much from um, can sometimes teach you a lot as well. So that's great. And you obviously you've been incredibly successful. Um, what you, last year, I, I started off my show by by talking about some of the challenges I faced in my context. And that was sort of more the operational day to day stuff. I guess with you working with your principals and you are new in yeah. this role. Yeah, uh, that was year, wasn't it? What what were your four principles struggling with? And again, we don't we use that word struggles, not a bad word. Struggle is a good thing. We try and get our children in the yeah. classroom to that struggle level, don't we? But what were they genuinely struggling with in your four contexts? And what was it about their context that maybe gave slight differences? Yeah, I mean, I think, listen, every, everyone, I think, struggled with um, things like attendance, you know, attendance were, were, were massive problems across, across the schools and across you know, nationally. And it's come out in the, you know, the press are talking about it a lot now. Um, and, and behavior as well was less so much extreme behaviors, but more there's a real there was a real apathy towards education. I think what happened was you know the pandemic made people realize how important schools were, not just in terms of education, but in terms of stability, consistency, um, having those um, you know, people having outlets and and support and people who know them. Um, and so when people came back immediately, they were really, really appreciative of it. And they were really, really kind of realized what they'd been missing and, and, and were fairly compliant. I think on the whole, most people straight after the, the lockdown um, broke up were fairly compliant. I think then what happened was the, there was a bit of a, a year of that. And then people kind of frustrated, reflecting on the fact of, of, of what happened, the lost learning, particularly when students started to see the impact it was having on their grades or the impact it was having on, on where they were at. Um, and it became really tough. And so actually there's a real apathy for education and a, lot, and a lot of students kind of felt, look, I've missed out on all this education. There's, you know, how am I ever going to catch up? Um, and, and a little bit of what's the point. And actually as teachers, we had to pick them up, but it was really, it was really difficult. And alongside that, all the issues um, were, were being, schools are often places where they're expected to pick up lots of the society's issues. And that's really hard place for teachers to be, let alone then recovering from a pandemic. So I think the, the typical things were the attendance, um, the catch up strategy, you know, it was all okay. Government saying, well, you, you got to have a catch up plan, but that's easier said than done, particularly 
you know, we know that some students engage with online learning better than others. We know that some students would have had tutors. We know that some students would have had access to, you know, even things like access to the internet or weren't having to share laptops. So there were big gaps, particularly for disadvantaged students, particularly for areas where there might be high levels of social deprivation. Um, and, and it felt like the gap was getting wider and, and, and not just the gap in terms of attainment, which I think has come out from the results, but kind of the appetite for education. And that was a dangerous thing that, that we kind of saw. And so we had to really combat that. So that, that was kind of the big thing, really, an apathy for education that, that we were, we were tr constantly trying to battle with. Yeah, I, I get that completely. And, and I don't blame some of our young people for how, how they feel about that. And I guess it's it's our job now to try and, and, and re-engage them and also reassure, reassure them that, that they can. But when we look at the regional disparity, so the government have given, obviously we've got this part-funded pay rise and hopefully strike action will not be something that impedes the, the flow of the school year. But what... What are we going to do? And I, I love what you said before about how you're just passionate about what you do. Mm -hmm. But as a senior leader, I do look ahead and I think, well, I, I'm in Greater Manchester in a, in a fairly affluent area, pockets of poverty and a real grinding poverty. And, and my view is poverty is a form of trauma um, and, it, and it really is. But how are we going to have this level playing field, that, that, that overused phrase, when outcomes by postcode are so shocking do you find that across your trust how do you level your playing fields yeah i mean it's um i mean there's a couple of things isn't there funding you know regional funding they're looking at the national funding formula um you know simply put some places need more money and an injection of, of funding um on the money um i think one of the things that's often um undervalued if that's the right word to use is the opportunities that are available you know i work in london now with one of my schools in london i work in london a fair bit and the opportunities that are available in london are so much more than for example when i was working in derby or you know my wife's from the northeast and, and her, my mother-in-law was a primary school head teacher in the northeast and the opportunities available um whether that be companies who are willing to engage you know um we work with man united you know schools in london that are working with kind of meta or facebook google you know all these big companies that, that are willing to go and work with those schools and actually um where are those connections further up north um so there's there's, there's the network um there's the there's the funding itself um and then there's also the, the breaking that cycle you know i came i'm from a an ex-mining town in the midlands um your your dad went to the pit um and and your mum worked in the factory that was that's what happened and and when you grew up that's what you did. Um, and if you don't first generation university, and if you don't see different routes, um, you typically um, only know what you know. So I think I, I think it's not an easy fix. I think people have tried it for a number of years. I think there's been attempts made, you know, the opportunities areas was was an attempt. But again, that was a small cash injection to do some projects that weren't particularly sustainable. Um, and I think if I'm honest, what needs to be agreed is a cross party agreement that we want to do this because what we can't have is a change of government changing change you know changing the wind changing the direction we've got to agree as a country that we want to level up and whether that be blue red labor conservative whoever it is in government it doesn't really matter everyone should have the same agenda when it comes to education and and, and there shouldn't be a postcode lottery that where you're born or what family you're born into is going to determine 
not just not just your future success in education, but your typically your future success in terms of your you know economic buying power, your your earning potential. So I think there needs to be a cross party um, discussion and strategy. I think we need to the networks available, the opportunities available in the regions, and obviously there's no getting away from funding. It's, you know it's it's harder to attract teachers in certain areas, and they're less desirable to live. Um, and so we've got to do something about that. Yeah, I. I know what you what you mean about well, it leads us nicely into to what is one of the other challenges facing leaders, and it would be nice to hear from from leaders in different areas because recruitment and retention. I'm going to ask you a question now, Marcus. If you had your time again, would you still go into education? Oh, it's a tough question, isn't it? I've always, I mean, I think like every teacher, you've always. Every so often you think about leaving teaching and I did think about it seriously at one point. Um, listen, I, I think I would, but I think it's getting more, much, much more difficult. Um, it's interesting when people talk about recruitment and retention because often they talk about recruitment and they don't talk about retention. Um, and I think what are often the things we try and do is come up with strategies for recruitment and then we for completely forget retention. Um, would I do it again? Um, yes. Um, do I think if I'm, if you're asking me honestly, do I think this is a forever career? Um, I think it's really hard and I really respect people who are in the classroom for 40 years. Do what, you know, even headship, um, the, the, the lifespan of headship is changing. Uh, typically you're seeing people being head rather than for long, much longer periods of time. So yes, I would worry about the sustainability of, the, of teaching. Um, if, if we carry on on the same trajectory, I think we really need to think about, how do we make it a sustainable career? Because if not, um, we won't get that long-term change. We will we, we will get people who do cycles um, and then decide to move on to something else. Yeah, and that, that's the worry, isn't it? Is you do get these amazing teachers that that stay in the classroom and and give it their all, but in the current setting and the current climate that we're in that job has undoubtedly become harder. And yeah, I think... it, has, it has, Louise, but also as well, you know, like there's such a judgment on teachers as well. So I've worked in, I've worked in special measure schools, I've worked in good schools, requires improvement schools. And, the, the, you know, Ofsted is used so much against teachers. So oh, if you work in that school, you must be not very good. And I, you know, some of the best teachers I've ever worked with have been in special measure schools, but I've seen them leave because they're like, oh, well, people don't think I'm very good or, you know, and actually you know, we've really got to think about how we view teachers and how they're judged and how, you know, the profession itself. But like you said, make it an attractive and sustainable model and also keep good teachers in the classrooms. You know, yes, you can earn UPS3, but um, if you just want to be a great teacher, which loads of schools need, that's what, you know, often schools need, how can we make that an attractive and sustainable career, a 30-year career, rather than having to get take responsibility on if you want um, to progress financially so yeah it's, it's difficult absolutely and and you're taking you know if I look at our senior leadership team at my current school they are the best teachers and and that is one of the reasons they are in leadership positions because you know one of them oversees teaching and learning and you know you won't get a better English teacher but she she now teaches less however what we do need is to build that capacity and set that example um, and make sure that, that we're bringing on those next teachers. How can we make teaching a more attractive profession? Because just dealing with young people, very few 
will say, I, I want to be a teacher when I grow up. And, and I guess fair enough, because when I was 11, 12, I wanted to be an archaeologist and I'm, I'm not I'm not on a dig at the moment. And I've certainly not done any of that over the summer. That, that was just a dream at the time. But why is teaching not a dream for a lot of our young people? Why why do you think it doesn't attract people as a as a career like I it used it, to? Yeah, listen, I think some people are are born to be teachers um Definitely. as in as, as in like they are just like you can see it and, and even in my class and um you know when i used to teach i could see oh you make a great teacher and i think some people have that i've always wanted to be a teacher you know i never wanted to be never crossed my mind to be a teacher i think sometimes we conflate you know teenagers aren't going to say a teacher often because they're they're in that rebellious stage you know teachers are often a figure of authority that they're we like, are not cool you know, it's, are it's, we? we're not cool <laughs> i remember i remember being a 23 year old teacher and they were like oh you're so uncool and you're such a loser and i was like i thought i was cool like, i just come from uni i was like i'm a fairly cool guy and then all of a sudden i was being told i was old and i was not cool and i was like this i never so I, th- I don't think you're gonna ever get it where loads of people are gonna say i really want to be a teacher i think that part of that is just the teenage years and um, often what you find is as they get older towards a level uh, university start thinking about it um, I think how do we make it attractive I think one um, we've got to we've got to make sure we it's not overwhelming uh, you know focus on the main thing the main thing being what happens in that classroom you know I think about how much time do we spend on things outside of that classroom and you know from little things like paperwork to intervention to everything but actually the greatest intervention is the hours you spend every day every week in the classroom with those kids and so keeping the main thing the main thing making sure we haven't got that external pressure. You know, I do, I do believe we need an inspector. I think Ofsted needs to exist, but, um, you know, it needs to be looked at how it exists and we won't go down that rabbit hole. Um, but we shouldn't be making sweeping judgments based on um, a number on a piece of paper. We should be we should be being more nuanced than that. And then also I think we've got a duty to ourselves as teachers to kind of make sure that we make the profession. So we're not, you know, when, when we become leaders, often people will say, oh, I'm not going to do that when I'm a leader. And then when they become a leader, they end up doing 90% of what they said they weren't going to do anyway, just a little bit differently. And it's really important that we go, well, actually, if I'm going to make um, well-being really important, I am going to do genuinely do something different. And as the next generation of leaders come through, we've got to be making the profession more attractive. You know, um, you know, for example, I've had people, um, one thing that really irritates me is, and I say irritating in a bit of a jovial way, is if people say, oh, you know, I, I need I need I need to come in late tomorrow because I've got to put my kid up. That's absolutely fine. Don't ever ask me. Don't ever feel apologetic about it. Like that is absolutely fine. When I was a head teacher, I'd be like, yeah, I'll cover that lesson if you need covering, or you know, or if something's happened at home, I need to shoot off. What? Why are you even speak to me? Get in the car, send me a message. And that's no problem at all. And I think we've got to be really clear that that's just normal in in other sectors, and we've and we feel guilty. There's a real emotional guilt sometimes that teachers feel. Um, and we've got to not do that. And I, and I was really bad for that until I had kids and realised that ultimately my kids don't care if I'm a teacher or not. They care if I'm dad. And so I think we've really got to focus on that because if you, I think if you poll teachers, like 95%, if not more, would have this emotional guilt for, for doing things that actually other people would just be like, well, that's just normal. Um, I don't know what you think of that, uh, Louise. But... Yeah, I mean, it, I guess it's because you wonder what will happen if you're not in that in that building so 100%. the quality of that cover work um and 
are you letting your young people down by not not being in and I think that's why we head towards that teacher burnout and you know you you get people you have a half term and then you start booking in like you say your dentist your doctor's appointment your your sort of personal MOTs that you need um you know and and it, it is unusual isn't it that you you know you can't do do those things that most people can do naturally and particularly and I don't know what you think about this but are graduates going to want to be in a job where you really cannot do it from home because I've I found or heard you know a lot of people in the in the real world work like this hybrid model now that the, the world has changed in its working patterns like that hybrid model sometimes in the office which is of course vital for those interactions with with professionals and colleagues those water cooler conversations as they're known as but also like that flexibility or flex to work from home that that is simply not possible or is it Uh, i read an article about ai teachers which is probably do a lot better job than me but yeah Mm -hmm. i mean what is that one of the reasons why teaching maybe isn't as attractive as it could be because of that yeah, I think I think it's hard. I think it's hard to compete against working from home. Um, I'm sure there's a model out there where it could work potentially. Some schools, primary schools, have PPA at home. Um, some schools have timetabled it so that there can be afternoons working from home. Um, you know, my senior leaders, I used to try and give them a working from home day, maybe once every two or three weeks, just to be able to to get a bulk of stuff done. Or if if I had a big project that I needed subject leaders to do, then I'd say, well, you know, just, just they work from home and we'll cover internally. So. I think we've got to really think about how that looks because it's not an attractive offer. And actually, um, you know, working from home now is so common and in lots of different professions, um, it's the it's the normal thing to do. And and, and, it's, and it means that you can do the things like uh, drop your kids off from school, pick your kids up, um, you know, nip, maybe nip out and go and have that appointment that you couldn't do before. So I think to be able to compete, particularly in the years to come, we probably need to think about how that works. Um, but also then double down on the fact that making teaching sustainable, so making the hours sustainable. I think we've got to get away from the fact that, you know, it, it's normal to do 60, 70, 80 hour weeks. And, you know, people always say, well, you get lots of days. Um, I, I don't have those holidays, but, you know, te- te- you know, yes, technically teachers do go on all those holidays, but the response is always, well, there's loads of vacancies. So if you want those holidays and, and, and the pay that people say, then we c- you can do it. And so I think we really need to look at if we can't compete with hybrid working how do we make teaching as sustainable as possible um and, and i think coming back to your point louise about um one of the things i think and i've, I've been really guilty of this is you, every day you feel like has to be perfect and what i mean by that is like if i have a day working from home and that means there's three lessons of cover i can't i think about the impact that three, those three lessons have had on those kids what i don't think about is the impact that the work i've done on that day will have on all the kids in the school. And so I think that's a real mind shift change because I find that really difficult. And I think every day when I was a principal, I was like, if I had one bad day at school, I'd be like, oh, I'm failing, the school's failing. And actually, naturally, as you'll know, like you have some weeks that are great, you have some weeks that are terrible, you have some days where you're like, this is the greatest job in the world, you have some days where you're like, this is literally the worst day ever. Like I am the worst teacher, head teacher, (laughs) professional. Um, So I think, that's the really important bit is understanding that not you know the trajectory has got to be positive but you're going to go you're going to have dips and it's understanding that when you're in that dip just accept it's a dip and don't overthink it um but that might just be me being terrible louise i don't know you i don't know if you've ever experienced that 
Uh, no, no, I completely agree. I have, a, I certainly do have my off days, but I think you're right. I think teacher mindset is a very unique thing, isn't it? You, you don't want to let young people down. No. It is a paternal or maternal role. I, I do think that, and it, you do take it very personally. It's not like you know, I'm just going to push this meeting back. Your meetings with 30 people who want to pass their GCSE. You know that that that's completely something that you will take very personally if you feel that you've let those people down. And again, yeah, I agree. It's about mindset. So as as with anything, all things leadership, my massive passion, my massive buzzword that I overuse is culture. Is like you say, it's creating the culture. How many head teachers, you know, would allow you know a subject lead to work from home to do that piece of work on? decolonization of the curriculum or ensuring that there, there, there's built-in regular worthy useful assessment points and what that's saying and, and how many leaders feel comfortable to let go a little bit because again even at senior leadership level you feel like you're being judged or being held up against um criteria that maybe you you can't achieve and therefore you try and sort of push right we need to monitor we need to monitor we need to prove we're doing this we need to prove we're doing that when really like you say do we we just need to sweat that small stuff that, that bread and butter that curriculum diet what's going on in the children how are we developing their character how are they going to become thriving young global citizens we're happy which is yeah. what we want at the end of the day um so yeah it's a real a real minefield isn't it so across just going back to recruitment and i, and I obviously knew you in a previous job when you when you were head teacher yeah where are your areas i mean you say yourself you're a maths teacher is math yeah, still yeah. A, an area of issue if we look at um the results that just come out you know we talk about children that have failed their GCSE um, because they've not got that magical grade four, although I would argue that someone who gets a grade three in English could do an awful lot of English and do it very well. Um, but we we sort of, you know, are we going to have a, a recruitment crisis? Where are, the, where are the areas that you feel are pinch points at the moment? Yeah, I mean, so I won't go down the maths grade stuff because I've got a real issue with maths education, but so that's, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. Um, and you told me to stay focused, so I'm going to do that. Um, yes, I think leadership you know, challenge. Um, geography is an area where if anybody out there is listening or is, hears this or, um, and knows any geographers, please let me know. Um, <laughs> so, you know, geography we found really difficult. Detail, um, found really difficult. Music as well. Um, and, and some. Of, the sad thing is some of these are simply there's not enough people training. You know, I think there's not enough geography mm. PGC students coming through. Um, some of it, like music, is that the jobs are just being pushed further and further out because um, you know music's been curriculum. Some schools are half an hour a week, or it's on a it's on a rotor. Um, so you know th there are certain subjects where we, where you know maths has got better. Physics is really tough. Science not too bad for biology, but typically physics. Um, but it, but but we've more than subjects this year having worked across different regions it's really interesting the regional challenges of recruiting um so so kind of two things that really hit me this year with the recruitment season one is um some areas are much more difficult to recruit than others um you know typically if you're near a city it's a bit easier if you're out of the city it's not as easy um particularly if you're in like a rural or semi-rural location um they're quite tough to recruit to uh, one of my schools sits on the near london so it's fringe and actually if you live 
10 miles um, one way is the school and 10 miles in the other direction is London. So you can get paid 10 grand more for going 10 miles that way rather than coming 10 miles this way. So that's a real challenge. Um, and, and also, uh, and I, you know, agencies, um, I've got a lot of time for agencies. I've got some really good relationships with some agencies that I, I've worked with and some fantastic people. But there is starting to become a thing now where agencies are capturing um, PGC students or, or, or signing people onto their books who are looking for career progression. And then schools are paying sometimes extortionate fees to recruit people. And, and, it, and it's compounding that issue of schools are struggling to find a teacher but then having to go down to these agencies and sometimes charging you know, in excess of 10, 15, 20 grand for a teacher. Um, it, so, so they're the kind of issues with recruitment. I think subject wise, it's you know, geography, science, physics, maths, music we struggled with, DT. Then you've got the regional aspect and then you've got um, the agency bit that I think really needs some regulation, if I'm honest. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, no, it's a good point you raised there about agencies. Um, like you say, they they are fantastic uh, when you do need that cover. Um, but yeah, I have noticed actually more and more sort of new to the profession teachers doing it through agency work. And again, but it comes back to that idea of flexible working, doesn't it? again if you if you can get paid well through an agency and they're taking you know good money for your services as well you can have that degree of flex can't you where you can sometimes say well yeah. i'm not going to work and and again maybe that's what comes down to it again is that again that flexibility so i think a real um learning point from this is as you said is the issue and that needs to be work done at university level um, I have a colleague who, who has a really close relationship with Manchester University and their ITT training, um, you know, and we do a lot of work with with those student teachers um, about the, the and really selling the profession to people. And I do think and someone's just asked a question in the chat, what drives you to teach and what is attractive about molding a young mind? And 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 I and I'll answer that question now, and and I hope you will as well, Marcus. But the reason I went into teaching was I went to Manchester University myself, first generation university. Again, like you, Marcus. You know, my dad my dad came over from Mauritius and and worked for the NHS and and qualified in a way that that doesn't exist now. Just sort of starting the job and getting better at it rather than than a degree four years, um, and. Yeah, and to be at university, I had aspirations of going into law, which was always my plan. I was going to do a law degree, but I decided oh, I'll just do a history degree, just 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 keep my options open. And then, and then there was a there was a sign in the student union saying, um, and this is giving my age away, but there were some Bosnian refugees in local schools, um, and they were asking for students for free to get two buses to I think it was Upper Blakely, I think. Um, didn't have a car at the time, but got two buses to get to this primary school and just do some reading with some Bosnian students um, that, had, that had come over to the UK. And I just thought, oh, that'll look good on my CV. Um, that, that is purely, I'll be very on, open and honest, that was the only reason that I did it. And, and then that, that's when I thought, wow, this is, this is impactful. So to answer your question there in the chat, um, Kairos drives you to teach. It's, it's that ability to just educate young people 
I don't I wouldn't say we mold young minds, but we just open their minds, set them on the right path, hopefully, and just broaden their minds and their horizons through through education through a life and it sounds so cheesy a lifelong love of learning but you know we i try and do it with my own child as well and just make sure that you just constantly got that thirst for knowledge and why this what's this and and again it's it's your shield i still passionately believe education is the key to to betterment however that looks whether that's your character whether that's your knowledge base whether that's your desire and hunger for learning it, it just is a step i'm not saying it's perfect and i'm not saying the curriculums are perfect around the world or around you know around our country or the world or you know there are some models that do it better than us but it, it comes down to that really so what what got you into teaching marcus what was your light bulb mo moment well, that's two different questions what got me into teaching or which was my light bulb moment because oh wow did teaching? they not happen did the... no, no, <laughs> oh, no, no, right no, no. <laughs> go on so, um so I, I I was applying for to work in the city as a, as a banker or to go and work in investment banking. Um, quickly realised that I had no chance of getting a job there. Um, I was poor. I was a poor kid, so I wanted to be I wanted to be rich. That, I'll be really honest. That's what I wanted to do. Um, I wanted to be able to provide for my family. Um, nothing flash, but I just wanted to be able to provide for my family. And then I saw Teach First, and I thought I'll do. I'll be really honest. I thought I'd do that for two years, and then I'll. Um, it'd, be, it'd be good on the CV to go and then look for a, for a, a job in finance. And I remember to this day, a girl called Lauren, my first class, year eight, um, in my first school. And I was doing teaching maths. And the great thing about teaching maths, why I love it, is because most you either love maths or hate maths. Very few people are indifferent about maths. They either love it or they hate it. And a lot of people don't like it. And they say they're no good. And this girl was in the class. And I remember, um, we were doing angles and uh, on straight lines or triangles. And I just remember the moment and she got it and she not got it the whole lesson and she got it and i remember her name lauren and she i could see her now i could picture her now her face and there was a light bulb moment and there was so much joy and she was like oh, i'm so happy and i remember thinking i've just helped that person do something they didn't think they could do and i just got a buzz from it and i was like and, and literally in that moment i was like oh, i'm going to be a teacher for a long time and and before literally up to that point i was like i'm going to do this for two years and then it was like now i'm definitely going to do it um so it was the moment for me and i think the final one was the, the the second one that really cemented it was it was about a year ago maybe i was shopping in sainsbury's and i looked at this girl and i was like i recognize you so when you see someone you recognize them i like, I recognize you and then she looked at me and i looked at her and she was like are you miss shepherd i was like yeah i was like you emma she was like yeah and I, there's a kid i taught in in one of my other schools when i was ahead of maths and ahead and she she when i took her on she was she couldn't do maths but i could see the potential in her and helped her in the class and it was my favorite class i ever taught and they got some great grades and i remember her saying sir thank you so much for helping me get maths like it's helped me go on and, and, and get this career in this that i never thought i could do and and she said and we found out you became the principal sir and we were so proud of you and in that moment i had to like bite my lip because i almost started crying. i was like oh, oh i've got to have to like find find an excuse to get away but i just think you can't explain to someone the feeling of helping someone do something that they thought wasn't possible and that might sound corny but like I had so many experiences as a math teacher where it's like, they'll tell me I'll never be able to do this. And then you know you can get them to do it. And they do it. And that trust they put in you, you cannot describe it. Like the tr once they have trusted you, they're with you for anything. They will just have ultimate faith that you can get them where they need to be. And you, you, you do, tra teachers transform kids' lives. It's as simple as that. And that's not being corny. That's a reality. And I think we often forget that. 
that, that that's the most powerful thing as a teacher and that's why i love doing it and I, and, I, and i do miss being in the classroom and you never know one day i might i might go back in and get the um get the whiteboard pens out and start again yeah oh uh, yeah i mean do you do much teaching now no 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 i don't teach at the moment but um um, I'm looking at doing some kind of intervention stuff maybe later in the year but no when I was a principal I used to teach I've, I've, both my headships I always taught um, I, feel, I think it's really important that as head teachers you teach because um, first of all it's called head teacher um, and second of all you know the, the kids need you in front of them the, the, the main thing is the main thing which is teaching and thirdly it helps you understand some of the things that you are implementing so you know if you're implementing a marking policy and you're struggling with one class, then you, the NQT with five classes or the UPST with six classes are really going to be struggling. So I think, I think that's really important and it keeps you in. And, and, and it's what we fell in love with, isn't it? We fell in love with teaching. So Yeah, definitely. And, and I've had to bow out of A-level teaching um, after, after this year. Well, next, next week I'll be doing it. So I'm back, back in history. Um, but I can't wait, to be honest. Um, and we've got some few more questions here from Kairos as well. Um, I got what you said that you appreciate the reciprocal nature of the parent-teacher relationship. What's the most impactful thing you've learned from a student? Um, I think I think it's probably similar to what I've learned from my kid, which is um, you don't underestimate how your words can affect people, both positively and negatively, um, because you might be. So this might sound arrogant, I don't mean it to, but like, for example, I've been the father figure to a number of kids that I've taught. Um, I know they've looked up to me and I'm really, that's, that's something that I take really um, pride in and it's very, you know, it's something and something that carries a lot of weight. So you've really got to make sure that you're regulating what you're saying because um, the kids really, they, they really respect you and even the kids that you think don't. So I remember one lad, he, uh, when, when I first, started teaching him or I was his principal actually and also taught him he was very rude to me shall we say uh, I'll put that politely um and he was rude 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 and I just wouldn't break and I wouldn't break and I kept going and going and going and support 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 and I remember on year 11 leaving assembly I made a joke to him about it that what he'd done what he said to me at the first time we'd met and he came and shook my hand and thanked me for everything and you realized the impact your words and your actions have and I could have gone a different way I could have I could have had a grudge against him I could have decided that that was it and I want him gone um, and in that moment I could have made a decision that could have changed the course of his life and I think that's what it's made me realize is that they really do listen um, even when you think kids aren't listening like my own kids at home they are um, they, they, they might be choosing to ignore any response but they are listening to what you're saying and it's a drip drip effect you know as teachers, we want our words to have impact now. But actually, what often happens is your words might have impact now. They might have impact in a week, in a month, in a year. It might be five years. It might be ten years. But they will have an impact, and that's the and that's the hardest thing because you often often don't see the, the the fruition of your work. Yeah, yeah, I I would agree with that. And you sometimes, like you say, you get those little bits of feedback five, ten years down the line. And you know, I, I'm very fortunate that I've got two ex-students who now are teachers who we've since employed, even though it's a completely different school, completely different town, but they, they not because they're my ex-students, because they were genuinely amazing um, teachers, but they are now working in my school, which is, is absolutely crazy. And, and some of the things they remember, I don't remember. So 
you know, little things. Oh, do we, we couldn't, I couldn't believe you were off for four days with flu in, in when I was in year seven. We couldn't believe it. You never take any time. And I was like, how do you even know that? But it just shows, doesn't it? Something like that has just um, skipped, skipped in, is, skipped my mind, but it's, it's really been held by another child. Sorry, Kairos. I'm just going back to a previous question. So uh, I've not skipped it. I've just not seen it. It's my fir first night on the job. So you're just going just gonna to have to bear with me. Um, yeah, you, you saying that I, I like teaching because I can teach people how to think, not what to think. How do you feel if they reach different conclusions? Um, how differences in conclusions between yourself and the student? Do I need to? It depends, doesn't it? My, my view in life is do no harm. That is the principle that I think anyone can live by and, and get on fine. You, you do no harm. And there are, of course, young people who are vehemently against maybe the 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 direction that we that we want to steer with but it's like a quote as a historian it was saying you know you shouldn't when you study history if it's comfortable if it's enjoyable if it's exciting you're not really studying history because history is very difficult it is very um controversial it is very different you know there's there's one version the other version and somewhere the truth lies between so again we can only guide um, our young people and ultimately we're guiding them to adulthood we're not the only influence in their lives um, and particularly as a DSL and, and and you know one of the challenges we faced last year and um, which we've not really touched upon because it's probably a different show is, is around behavior but is that is the rise in disaffected young males who have maybe turned to other affiliations um, that maybe aren't healthy for them and you know I can only I can only guide to a certain point and we just have to constantly believe in that child um, constantly reiterate and again like you said Marcus it's that drip drip feed of oh, those goodness. messages um, I do think you know teaching or education as a profession is coming under a little bit of criticism maybe for having an agenda or that that use of woke um that we do but we're simply going to operate in in today's society and making sure our young people are ready for the challenges mm. of, of that society bring with them and, and and acceptance and tolerance and again principle of do no harm and that whether that's keeping that child safe but also the decisions that they make in the future are the right ones for them so of course there's going to be different conclusions um to well, give you a to give you an ex sorry marcus what were you going to say do, do you not think though that um like so, so the social, I call it like the social media binary is is one of the problems. So if you look at Twitter, for example, you're either for it or against it. It's black or white. There's no, everyone has to pick a camp. And if you're not in this camp and you're not in this camp, then you, there's no place for you. And, and we've kind of lost the ability to A, agree to disagree respectfully um, and B, to, to find some centre ground. It, it kind of feels, I don't know what you think, but it kind of feels a lot of the time, this is what I'm talking about as, as much as children, probably more, much more than children that, you know, let's pick education like, oh, um, warm strict, you're either for it or against it. There's no in between, pick your side. And if you're for it, you're evil. And if you're against it, you, you shouldn't be. Do you know what I mean? And it's like, and kids are watching that, that, that world evolve where everyone becomes kind of armors up and goes to battle rather than talking and agreeing. Actually, I've, you've made some really good points, Eloise, but I just, I disagree. But actually we can both coexist um, with, the, with different views. And that's something that I, I don't know, what's your thinking on that? Because I think, I really do worry about that. Um, but you know, as, as, 
and as leaders, it's our job to almost moderate that. Does that make sense? Yeah, um, totally. And I think we found that in our in our work around anti-racism, haven't we, about how it, it has become very polarised, the debate, and then that doesn't leave that that space to just actually have a good old discussion about it. And to give, to give an example that I dealt with last year is the, the Andrew Tate effect. You know, we, we had a number of students who really, really idolise Andrew Tate um, and really think what he says is is great um and what do we do there do we do you know the worst thing we can do is shut that down mm-hmm. the worst thing that you know we you, you shouldn't be telling children you know oh no he, he's not good don't don't listen to him that's bad you do you we cannot underestimate like you said the impact of social media and the impact of where young people find their sending um, and so I've had some fantastic discussions with young people, um, whether that's with, um, we've set up a gender equality council, they wanted to talk about it. I've had some, you know, really good conversations with students who, you know, tell me why, why do you find what that person says, uh, you know, good? What, what is it you take from that? And we've had some really, really good conversations. And again, it comes back to, healthy discussion that yeah I think you're right we've lost the art of and, and one thing I'm very keen on um is is oracy in education and the ability to talk um and you know I don't know about you Marcus but I don't like a quiet classroom um I especially with historians uh, the historian in me I want kids talking I want them debating I want them to argue there's nothing wrong with a good argument a good intellectual argument is there and and again and I encourage that with with uh, the staff as well as a leader had a great working party discussion last year as we moved our behavior policy towards a relational behavior policy 20 staff i think 30 actually at the first meeting gave up their time at the end of the year after school we went on for two hours and there were such different views but it was that real healthy professional dialogue okay we're just going to go to um break and then hold that thought Marcus and we'll we'll continue to um to discuss the challenges that lie ahead in education. It's time for a fresh start to language learning. Pearson Edexcel's new student-centered German and Spanish 2024 GCSEs cater to the needs of all learners regardless of their background, ability or reason for studying. Rooted in learned language knowledge, their assessments are transparent and accessible, allowing all students to showcase their language skills. Through inclusive and relatable content, the new Pearson Edexcel MFL GCSEs build a shared cultural capital that helps students develop an understanding of and appreciation for the wider world. Find out more at go.pearson.com forward slash MFL GCSE 24. And welcome back. After a short little break, we've so far discussed the leadership challenges that lie ahead. Try to keep it on on task, but we've we've talked about recruitment and as important retention. That word is often added on. Recruitment and retention, it all rolls into one, but recruitment, a little bit been done around that in terms of making, you know, ECTs, the new programme. I would say another thing, Marcus, I don't know what your thoughts are, but the MPQ qualifications, I think, are a really attractive addition, you know, with them being 
without charge at the moment, which is I believe has continued next year. Have you found that that the uptake's been been good on the MPQs? Yeah, we've got a lot of our staff. I think I think the fact they've diversified them as well, so that you know it's there's the one looking at teacher development uh, behaviour. Uh, you know, the, you've got the um, SL, the the MPQH, the MPQEL. So we've seen a massive uptake. Lots of our staff across all the schools are engaging with them positively. You know, lots of really good research-based um, learning. Um, and it's something that we've been able to use as a, as a retention tool, but also as a professional development tool. Um, and I think that, you know, they've been great for the profession. Uh, lots of people really enjoying them. And I think they've been rebranded. Um, my wife does some work um, with them, so I know a little bit about them. And I know that, that a lot of people have commented and, and how they've really enjoyed them. So, yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, leadership development is something that we don't enough of in education. You kind of, I don't know what it's like in the sector. I've never worked there, but you kind of become a leader. And then it's like, right, become a leader. And like we said before, yeah, I've been fortunate to have one of the best mentors I could possibly have, my current boss, Pete. Um, but if you've not got a great mentor, you either know what not to do or you use your instincts. And your instincts are probably quite good, but they'll only get you to a point. So I think you know, leadership development, whether that's a formal program or like more mentoring, more, more peer and peer support, um, more secondments, um, that, that, that's, yeah, that's what's needed to drive that, that leadership development. Yeah, and I, I actually facilitate on a leading behaviour and culture one. And I've I've enjoyed that as a leader. So, you know, it's two days out of school. And again, you feel that guilt. Oh, but actually, I get the whole day with a, a cohort that are from all different schools, all different levels of middle leadership, which I think is a crucial level of leadership. It really is. And, and we must support our middle leaders um, in any school, but to get to spend the day with them and we're discussing different scenarios about behavior, culture, and, it, and you know, you hear the feedback that I get because it's a, it's such a safe space. They're not, they're not at my school, but some, you know, I'm still hearing what the problems are and what the difficulties are. And it's just so as a leader for myself, and again, that comes back to what you were saying, you like to develop other leaders now um, in your role as director of education. And you've got four principles there and I'm sure your reach is beyond that. Um, but to to influence other leaders um, and and to, to help them become better leaders or aspire to become leaders. So some people just think, oh, I could never do that. I would never, I would never, and, that confidence sometimes, but again, that constant learning um, and discussion with colleagues is so, so important, isn't it? So yeah, I do think the the MPQs um, are a way of helping with retention um, because I do think they they give that real spark to people who, who just want to keep learning. And again, it's, and again, we're modeling it, aren't we? Everything we do is about modeling it to our young people. Um, Continuous professional development is is one way of doing that. So we discussed recruitment and retention, done a little bit about the behaviour challenges that we, that we face. Um, I do think there's another show in that because I think that again, like you said, is becoming quite polarised. Do we do we go hard line, you know, like some schools maybe do, or do you have, you know, some people might say a relational approach that we're adopting is a soft approach, and that the you know, and, and that's not a good approach either. Or, you know, it, there's a lot of debate around behaviour. But I, I do agree that all behaviour is communication. And we need to listen to what to how our young people are behaving and what they're asking for from us. And um, as we return back to, to normality. 
And then one other area that I thought we could discuss um, is, is sort of the financial side of, of leadership. Um, I know when I did my MPQH, that was the area where I was like, yes, that, that's the area I don't know anything about. So as a deputy head teacher, not having that experience in the finance, you're almost shielded from it, aren't you, um, until you get to headship. Uh, and then I think it sort of almost puts some some deputies off maybe going towards headship because they do feel like, oh, well, how do you run a school? I'm not a, I've not got a business mind. Yeah. Um, so, again, budgets, though, we hear about budget cuts. Um, I saw a, a report, uh, I think Pearson republished a report where they've interviewed a lot of, of about over sort of 6,000 educationalists. And it came quite clearly through that head teachers in secondary um, but also in primary, especially, have real concerns about budget. I'm reading about schools that are literally going to crumble to the ground with some kind of perishing concrete. We we hear about schools that have you know buildings that aren't fit for purpose. Um, we hear about support staff cuts are the first things to go when you are tightening those strings as a school now you've been there and done it and had the budget sheets what what how do you make savings when times are hard in a school what what is where do you make your cuts i think you know i was i was a principal from 2016 onwards so i'm you know the, the I, I, I would probably say that there were they've always been as i've been a principal I think there's a couple of things really. One is there's a bit of a, a myth is probably the right word to say. Often people will say, and, and we do it all the time when I interview people for head, headship roles, oh, I don't know much about finance. Um, and that's understandable. But actually, most of your budget is already committed. You know, between anything between 80% and in some instances, 105% of your funding goes on staffing. Okay. That is teaching staff, non-teaching staff. You've then got your fixed costs, like your bills. So these are all things that you can't change. You've got to put the lights on. You've got to pay the gas. You've got to pay your staff. You've got to pay, um, you know, for maybe let the building if you don't own it, etc. So often what you find is you only really, as a principal, get to control, you know, I'd say at best I've only ever controlled like 100 grand. And, and that's if I'm including like how much money to give to each department. So typically when it comes to like a fighting fund in, in times now, you know, if you've got 50 grand to play with, you're kind of happy. So often people get put off by the finance stuff, but really it's just most of it is there already and there's nothing you can really do about it. When it comes to cuts, you know, it, it's really tough because you, you then you then have to start thinking about your values, what's important to you, and then think about, you know, what is the essential. And sometimes those things can be conflicting. So to give you an example, you some people... You know, I've worked in areas where I believed it was really important that we had music because our students did not get to um, experience music. They didn't get to have music lessons. So I used to have peripatetic teachers coming in. I knew I could run my school without that. But my values were that I wanted my kids to have the opportunity to be able to do music and those lessons to be off free because the students couldn't afford it. Um, when you make cuts, Things like that are just non-essentials. So it's a bit like, you know, if you're in the Arctic and you're freezing and you've got, you know, you get frostbite and, you you know, the fingertips start to, to deaden because you can live without them, but you can't live without your vital organs. And, and that's unfortunately how it is with, with finances. And, and, and I'm not saying, what I'm not saying here is that support staff aren't vital, but the reason a lot of people go to support staff first is because technically you could run the classroom without them. 
if anyone's ever taught, they know that technically you might be able to do that, but in reality, it's the worst thing you can possibly do. And so it's just a really hard position because something's got to be cut. And as a principal, that's probably the hardest thing you do because you know it doesn't balance. You can't return an, an unbalanced budget. So you've got to make some tough decisions and someone's not going to be happy. And not just someone's not going to be happy, it is going to detrimentally impact somebody or people or a group of people. And so your job as the principal, in discussion with your senior leadership team, with staff, is to try and minimise the negative impact it's, it's inevitably going to have. And what I always used to do is be really open. I think too often people are really cloak and dagger with budgets, really, you know, there's no... I was really open with the staff and said, look, these are the decisions we're going to have to make and this is why I've made them. And, it, and actually, if people think that there's a better way of doing it, then I'm really, I'm genuinely open to that. Um, so that I think budgets are really hard. They're tough at the moment. You know, the cost of living crisis, not just that, but, you know, energy prices. Some, some schools are paying nearly triple the amount for their energy. And we're not talking about a household bill there. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of pounds that should be spent on staff and, and support staff and, and resources that are now being spent on just putting the lights on. Um, and so it's a really difficult climate. And I think that's probably the hardest job as a principal because you are responsible for people's jobs, people's livelihoods, um, and you've got to make some big decisions. And unfortunately, it's the, the fact that that resource is shrinking now, it's, 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 a, it's not even a zero-sum game. It's a negative deficit game. You are going to make something worse. It's now about making the, le- the something the least worst, which is really bad grammar, but... Um, and that's but you are a mathematician, do. so we'll let you off. Yeah, grammar. I'm not good with words. But, but I knew um, what you meant, and you, you know, and considering, um, you know, numbers aren't my my strong point. That I did understand what you just said there, Mark. Yeah, no, I, I I agree there, and I think you mentioned the cost of living crisis and electricity and bills. I mean, it is ridiculous, isn't it? And what one thing that at my school we were really really keen on was some of our young people you know, live in cold homes. So we ain't switching the heating off, you know, which is be your, you know, you want your school to be a warm and welcoming place, literally. Um, so we, we have to absorb those costs, don't we? And and as a, as buildings age and as investment doesn't go in and there's lots of grants out there and uh, something which I think young people are quite interested in is, is is climate change and the environment and things like that. And I know some schools are doing a really, we're doing sort of like a crowdfunded solar panels on the roof, which is expensive, but will yeah. be really cost effective um, if, if we can get that done. So schools are starting to think quite carefully about how to, how to, to run their buildings yeah. more efficiently. Um, but it is something that you maybe just shouldn't or wouldn't be expected when you go into headship or leadership or business manager in a school that maybe you think, goodness, this this is what we're having to think about uh, rather than how can we improve the quality of teaching and learning? How can we bring on our staff? Which, again, is we keep going back to it, is the backbone of every school. 100%. And I think, Louise, you know, leaders are now having to become more entrepreneurial when it comes to school. How do we do things differently, creatively, innovatively? Um, you know not cheaper but more economical and oh how do we generate revenue to so we can put it back in so that's one thing i think i think the other thing you, you said it there is you've got to be really explicit about your why so just give you a really small example um back in i think it was last december um covid was kind of rife again and we had lots of staff um lots of staff off and we got to a point we were, we were staff were going and going and going and we were, we were we were thinking about having to close a bubble and we were a week out from, from Christmas. 
Um, and I just, I, I brought all my stuff together and I just said to them, look, I know everyone is thinking we should close. And I understand that I'm asking a lot of people and people are covering and I was covering, my SOT were covering. But look, if we close now, some families, it's okay for us. We, we, we can work from home, we'll go online, we'll get paid. A lot of our families who are working will have to take time off to be with their kids and they will lose money the week before Christmas. And actually what we stand for as a school is we don't want that to happen. So what I think leaders have to do is explain their why. I'm not making a decision to be pig headed. I'm not, you know, like you said, we're, we're going to keep the heating on, but that's going to come at a cost. But this is why we think that cost is worth it. I think the two things there, the entrepreneurial side, but then, you know, as things get more difficult, you can't lose your sense of why. And I think people, my experience is people will always galvanize around that and will always go the extra mile knowing we're doing it for the right reason. You know, I, I firmly believe people's Christmases, we kept people in jobs that week um, and and explaining the why to the staff and not losing that. And that's a really difficult balance when you've got to make tough decisions. But I think that in essence is leadership. You know, anyone can make decisions. Where are they coming from? Why are you making them? Why today i think it's really important and we can't lose sight of that when we with tough times that we've got and tough times ahead thank you very good yeah we'll back back shortly this is teachers talk radio and this is teachers talk radio news it's time for a fresh start to language learning Pearson Edexcel's new student-centred French, German and Spanish 2020 GCSEs cater to the needs of all learners, regardless of their background, ability or reason for studying. Rooted in learned language knowledge, their assessments are transparent and accessible, allowing all students to showcase their language skills. Through inclusive and relatable content, the new Pearson Edexcel MFL GCSEs build a shared cultural capital that helps students develop an understanding of and appreciation for the wider world. Find out more at go.pearson.com forward slash MFL GCSE 24. Right then, so last 10 minutes of the first show. Um, I hope you've enjoyed it. I have. It's not as easy as I thought it would be. There's a lot to uh, <laughs> lot to think about. Um, but I've really enjoyed it. And I've really enjoyed talking to Marcus because I've not, not spoke to you much over the summer. So let's keep it nice and light now. We've talked about all this very heavy stuff, recruitment, retention, budget, workload, um, how we support our students. So let's keep it nice and light for the last sort of eight minutes or so that we've got, Marcus. What are you looking forward to for next year? What is the bit that you think, I cannot wait, no matter how ridiculous it is, what are you looking forward to? What am I looking forward to? Um, well, a couple of things. Being back, you know, summer is always great, but being back in schools and seeing the kids and seeing the staff and seeing great teaching and learning happen. I, I think... I think um, you know, what am I looking forward to is it's been a tough year with results. It's the first year back to kind of pre-pandemic um, standards. So I think really supporting schools to um, overcome those barriers. You know, I know it sounds really silly, but I'm really excited about that challenge. You know, the challenge of getting kids back up um, and, and also understanding that it's not an insurmountable challenge, you know. Um, so, so working with those leaders to to prove that the regional disparity doesn't have to be. You know, I work in Sheffield, I work in West Midlands, I work in London, I work in Buckinghamshire, um, all over different various different regions. And, and I think 
my job is great because I get to see the 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 pluses of those areas, the things that are difficult. So I'm really just looking forward to getting back and attacking our strategy and and, and you know stepping those outcomes up again for the young people. Um, and you know with challenge comes opportunity, and I, I, I relish a challenge. You know me, I like I like to chuck myself into a challenge, and so I'm really excited about going back and analysing the results and seeing how we're gonna how we're gonna step things up. Yeah, same same for me on, on a mildly serious note. What am I looking forward to? I'm looking forward to obviously seeing the kids because that would be really odd if I wasn't. I don't know why I'd be doing the job. But um, I think I'm looking forward to building on last year's success. Last, last year was a scary year for everybody. I think we were all a bit like, gosh, what's, what's going to happen here? It feels like we've got a degree of stability um, entering the year. It feels like we know what we're doing now. It feels like we know what we're dealing with. Um, and I feel like we, we're we building back on, on that and going even further. Um, on, a, on an anecdotal level, I'm looking forward to to stop eating so much because um, I, I will, I do look forward to like sort of having my break set by a bell and my lunch set by a bell <laughs> um, because I, I feel like I need that. I'm slightly worried I won't be able to nap in the afternoon, but um yeah so I'm, i've asked some of my colleagues if i don't answer my radio after two o'clock to just try and nudge me because i have been used to having little uh cs uh, but i'm just looking forward to the funniness of the job like i, I say this to everyone I, you can have the most ridiculous conversations you know you feel like you can work for the un you've got a kid who won't take his hoodie off and he's got to get to english and you you have this 10 minute deep conversation and then it unravels into something else and you just think wow this is incredible but you know you just have these bizarre situations these hilarious conversations young people are hilarious sometimes it's like being in an episode of the in-betweeners when you're just sort of listening in or some of the things that the kids come to you or i think the random i kid you not we confiscated an ironing board off a student just towards the end <laughs> of term um he found it and he thought he would bring it into school um for a laugh so it's just that i mean you, you know take take your, your job spending the day on teams get into a school they're incredibly vibrant incredibly funny places and i don't feel i know we term watch and we go how many weeks till half term how many weeks till easter but you never clock watch um because the day is just rapid and you can have a million and one interactions and, you, and you're coming away and you feel energized in a different way and it, it is a great job um we, you know, this 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 show is designed to encourage people into the profession, uh-huh. and and to realise that it that it is a great profession, and that we want people to re- be retained and to thrive in this profession, just like we do for our young people. So, any final thoughts, Marcus, before we play the closing jingle of my debut show? Apart from to congratulate me. Well, I was going to say I better say something nice about you. That you, you know, oh, it's, been, it's, been, it's been a pleasure to speak to you, Louise. I think you've done a great job on your first show, and thanks for thanks for inviting me on um and yeah just echoing your comments about i think the thing i'll finish with is teaching profession leadership profession but i think i've spoken to lots of people i see lots of people coming into the profession career changes when i often say why do you want to teach they're like i just don't feel like what i'm doing is fulfilling and i think i don't know about you but when when, I, when i'm teaching and if i have a great lesson you literally like floating around the classroom it's like you're on the clouds because the kids are buzzing and and you know i, I think my biggest leader is um, except there's ups and downs. Um, but the downs, when you're in a down, look at it and it's not as bad as you think it is. Um, and the ups are absolutely euphoric. And so I think we've got to be kinder to ourselves. We've got to understand it's a long game. 
um, and that, you know, I'm doing a lot of training at the minute and some days you have bad days of training, you're just rubbish and it's like, I just feel rubbish and you just got to accept it. It's not a great day today, but, but, but over time it's going to be so much better and um, it's a great profession, a great show, Louise. I'm looking forward to hearing you talk uh, with very different leaders and, and continue the show and uh, thanks for having me. Oh, thank you so much, Marcus and good luck for the start of the new year. I'm sure you'll smash it. Real. And thank you to everybody who's listened to my first show. And I hopefully will see you again or hear you again, or you will hear me in uh, two weeks time. This is going to be a fortnightly show on a Wednesday. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful evening and a great start back to the new term. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.